Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. We are bright and early, 8.45 a.m. Pacific on the morning, uh, Wednesday morning, uh, June the 7th, 2023. We're talking time today, tomorrow. And yesterday, uh, a few years ago, I wrote a book in association with my friends at DLD. It's a collection of conversations from early guests on the show. Tomorrow's versus yesterday's conversations in defense of the future. We focused on trying to imagine how we can, we collectively, society can get to tomorrow uh, without fetishizing yesterday and falling back on forms of nostalgia. It's a really good book for those of you who haven't got it yet, including uh, conversations I had with old friends like the author of Surveillance Capitalism, Shoshana Zuboff, and my old friend Maria Resso just won the Nobel Prize. We are talking tomorrows and yesterdays with my guest today, but rather than thinking collectively, uh, my guest is interested in how we as individuals perceive the passage of time how we think about our future selves and our past selves. And he has a new book out. It's a fascinating book, Your Future Self, How to Make Tomorrow Better Than Today. So it's a kind of, in some ways, a compliment to my book, Tomorrow Versus Yesterdays. But it's uh, by a single author, Hal Hirschfield, who teaches uh, at the business school at UCLA. The book is out uh, this week. And I'm thrilled that Hal is joining us. Hal, uh, welcome. Thank you so much, Andrew. I'm, I'm really uh, excited to be talking to you today. So how, how does the idea of our future self, how does it intersect with the stuff that I was writing about in Tomorrow's Versus Yesterday's about thinking collectively and trying to get to a better future rather than fetishizing in imaginary past? Yeah, I think that is a, it's a really important question because you're getting right at the heart of essentially time travel, right? Uh, and by time travel, I, I don't mean, you know, literal, but I mean mental time travel. How do we think ahead? How do we think to the past? Now, what you were talking about, what the topics that you cover in your book are really, like you said, about the collective. And that's about groups now moving forward, thinking about the future of that group. My work really looks at individuals over time, but I think we have to recognize that these two things are not necessarily mutually exclusive. We can think about ourselves and that adds up to eventually the people who will come after me. And so I think in some ways, how we consider ourselves over time is the, the building block of how we think about the collective over time. I don't want to turn this into a conversation about Donald Trump or make America great again, because that gets really boring. But that was the subtext in some ways of tomorrow's versus yesterday's. How do we stop imagining a, uh, an, uh, a past which to us looks good and secure, but of course isn't, is a pure invention? Do we do the same how as individuals? Do we, or many of us, fetishize our past, make it nostalgic, romanticize something that didn't really exist? Yeah, well, the, it, it becomes nuanced, right? So there are 
instances where we think nostalgically back on the past. Um, and, and in particular, we're likely to do that uh, when the present is relatively uncertain. Um, there's some wonderful research suggesting that nostalgia is actually a force for meaning, right? It, it helps us create meaning in an otherwise uncertain um, uh, world that, that may seem scary. Um, but that's, this is, again, this is interesting. This sort of goes back and forth between the collective and the singular. Um, on a singular level, we do something really interesting with ourselves in the past, which is that when we think about something that we've accomplished that we're proud of, we then bring that past self very close to who we are now. But if we think about times when we were, well, I don't know, behave regrettably or we were embarrassing or we weren't as good as we were hoping we would be, that's when we then put distance between ourselves now and ourselves in the past. So it's not a single flavor. I think there's a lot of nuance there. Uh, as a function of the motivations that we have right now. Hal, I'm not sure if you have this quote in your book. It's a quote that often ends up in business books uh, by, I think it was Wayne Gretzky, the the great uh, ice skater who argued about the puck, saying that you always have to skate to where the puck will be whether, rather than where it is. It, 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 right. Are you giving the same advice about one's life? In order to make sense of our lives as individuals, we have to imagine where we will be rather than where we actually are. Yeah, I, I love that quote. It, it didn't make it into the book. Um, I would say to some extent that is the thrust of my research with, with some wrinkles, right? So a lot of my research focuses on the need to um, more concretely visualize uh, the future and our future selves. Um, but I think there's an important caveat there, which is that we can never fully know our future selves, um, because we can't anticipate how all the different decisions that we make between now and some later point in time will impact us. So, I mean, I think you can take a guess at where the puck is going if we want to carry that one out, but we can't really know because, uh, you know, our teammates might surprise us in the same way as our choices might surprise us. That said, if we put our blinders on and fail to vividly picture the future, th that's when we may end up at a future that we, you know, we're not all that satisfied with. Talked earlier about being imprisoned in the past, but I, I'm, I'm guessing also in terms of your research and work, in a way that imprisonment, the, the most dangerous form of that imprisonment isn't the past, but in the present, when we make decisions about the future as individuals, everything always seems so immediate, it's pressing, um, it creates a degree of claustrophobia. How do we escape that prison? How, how can we get above the daily, the hour-to-hour -hour concerns to make wiser decisions about our future, whether it's our careers, our emotional lives, our family lives, our financial lives? Yeah, it, it, it's. I love the way that you said that the present can be a prison or that the tyranny of the present might... My, my, um, collaborator Liz Dunn says the present is a magnifying glass for our emotions, which I think is such a good way to right. say everything feels like it's more important that's happening right now. Um, but you're asking sort of how do we escape the shackles uh, of the present? And, you know, to, to some extent, this is what a lot of my book and my research are about. Um, but, you know, just as, as one, as one sort of small way to think about it, um, 
some of this entails simply starting a conversation with our future selves. Researchers call this self-distancing, the idea that I could essentially talk to who I'll become and have, have that future version of me talk back to who I am now. One of the things that it does is removes us from time. It takes us out of the present and allows us to see more of a, called a bird's eye view or broad view of time so we can see the different pieces of our lives um, fit together. So in a sense, is it wish fulfillment? When I, for example, mm. talk to my kids about what they want to do in terms of their career, what they want to dedicate their lives to, I sometimes say, well, plot out three alternatives in five or 10 years. Imagine what you, your dream would be. Imagine what you really don't want to be doing. And then imagine something that's perhaps realistic, a compromise of all of them. Do we need to imagine not just our future self, but our future selves? Because uh, if, if we can do that, then we can make choices about where we want to go. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a really great exercise. You know, the, the idea of sort of bringing in possible selves to our lives, and that could be hoped for and feared um, selves as well. The, the beauty of that is it, 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 it's not that it tells us exactly what's going to happen because we can't know, um, but it allows us to think about the, the possibilities. I would, I would add something to that, though, which is that it's, it's important not to fetishize the future in so much as, you know, you were saying don't fetishize the past. I think this is also relevant here as well. We know from research that if we positively fantasize about the future, it can actually give us some energy, like some utility right now and make us sort of mm, take a step back and rest on our laurels and not do anything. So it's, it's good to think about the future in a positive way and to think about the different paths. But then we also have to go a step further and say, what's the contrast between where I am right now and where I want to be? And, and what are the concrete things I can do to get between now and there, and then start figuring out how can I do them? And even in the smallest forms, and that I think is an extra exercise to add to the one that you're talking about, which can make things uh, more effective and successful. How, what do you think of the, the art or perhaps the science of, Futurism, your book comes with some lovely blurbs from some of America's leading futurists, Adam Grant, uh, Daniel Gilbert, Daniel Pink. They've made an industry out of this. Mm -hmm. Are Americans, I mean, there's one group, of course, the Trumpists, who the MAGA people who were, nostal who, who were turning the past into a form of nostalgia, fetishizing the past. Is there a danger with business school people uh, and futurists, particularly in Silicon Valley and on the West Coast during in LA, where we fetishize the future. I think there is a danger in a specific way. So the danger comes from focusing too much on the future uh, uh, at the cost of real present day problems. But, but let me let me add some some color there, because essentially one of the things that I worry about when we think about sort of this, the, the futurism, uh, you know, movement or umbrella, if you will, um, one of the things I worry about is when the possibilities of 
living forever or you know going to space or whatnot may seem so tempting and tantalizing that we ignore what's happening right now um but on the flip side i think it is really really important that we do focus on the future as well and and future problems um when i was working on the book i talked to xander rose who's uh one of the or he's the executive director of the long now foundation of a foundation that yeah i am familiar i, I love their okay. bar actually in san francisco it, yes yes exactly it's amazing um and stuart uh, uh we had john markov on the show uh, last year who's written the biography of uh, stuart brand i know stuart brand too oh perfect okay so so you're familiar and and um one of the things that he's pointed out to me, which I think is so, so important, is that some of the present day problems we have on a collective, some, some of the present day problems we have on a collective level uh, wouldn't be as big as they are if we had paid more attention to them 30, 40 plus years ago. And so you start saying, what are the seeds that are being planted right now that are going to mushroom into much bigger collective problems in 10, 20, 30 years, right? And so in other words, it is important to focus on the future in that regard, but also pay attention to present day problems, right? So it's a balancing act. And if I had a pile of money, I wouldn't say put 90% of it toward the future. Um, I would probably say put 80 to 85% of it toward now, but, but then a dedicated chunk to solving these problems that will happen within our generation and, and way beyond as well. Your new book, Your Future Self, is a commercial book. It's designed for a broad public, but you also write pretty hard scientific white papers on time and on the future. What's the difference and what kind of research do you do on time and on the future uh, that would be relevant to my kind of audience, a mainstream audience, a non-academic audience? Right, 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 right. Yes. Yeah. So this is, I mean, there is a real blend here. Uh, the book is essentially meant to distill all of this research that's, you know, focused in this mental time travel space into accessible insights. You know, I would say one of the, um, maybe one of the most accessible uh, bits of work that I've done is literally just tried to figure out how we can get people to better connect with the future, with their future selves. Um, and, and, you know, for that, we've played around with age progression technology, where we literally show people what they will look like in the future. And those sorts of exercises have been met with some success. In other words, when we confront people with these vivid age progressed images, um, they're more likely to want to save, they end up do saving. Other researchers have found that these sorts of tools, visualization exercises, uh, can actually prompt women in rural Kenya to take better preventative health measures and save money as well, and so on and so on. And so the, you know, your question is a great one, which is how do we uh, think about some of the actionable insights from this research? That's just that's just one. Um, uh, but but you know the the bigger point is how do we make the future more vivid um, to essentially aid people in thinking ahead. The numbers on people who don't think about the future are very worrying. I, I don't have the numbers to hand, but an astonishing amount of Americans, for example, don't think about the future, don't save for the future. The foundations of this country, of course, are a puritanical one founded by uh, 
everyone from Benjamin Franklin to Dale Carnegie, the idea of self-control, of managing one's life so that you always have enough, especially when it comes to money. Is there, in terms of building a better future self, is there, um, shall we say, a a self-control, a puritanical element? Do Puritans, for example, um, Calvinists or Lutherans, do they do a better job of building a future self than a, a Catholic, for example, who, 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 who are less focused on self-control? I'm not sure what the research would suggest on that. I mean, Weber, of course, is uh, Protestant ethic and the foundations of capitalism uh, made some very, very interesting uh, uh, observations about all this stuff. I think that represents a fascinating empirical question. And to the best of my knowledge, we don't have the data on this. Like I would love to know what's the relationship between these different adherence to different religions uh, and your likelihood to be future oriented. Um, You bring up an excellent point, which is that certain traditions are going to be more focused on that sort of self-control and that delay of gratification than other ones. Um, we do know, of course, that 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 element, the element of being able to, you know, uh, control our impulses and delay gratification, that is an element of building up a a better future self. But it's important to remember that too much of that can be a, a bad thing, and the sort of Calvinist attitude, which which you bring up. I worry a little bit that that could result in uh, a hard time actually exhibiting the self-control. There's some fascinating research uh, by Ayelet Fishbach and her colleagues that suggests that we often think that self-control has to be hard, that like it's not real unless it's, it's painful and mm. difficult. And in reality, that doesn't necessarily have to be the case. And the, the, the best chance we have of persisting with a self-control task is to figure out how to make it more fun, which, which almost seems <laughs> obvious, but, but that's not the way that we think. And I, you know, I, I hadn't connected it, but I, I do wonder if part of the roots of that sort of attitude about difficult self-control stems from exactly what you're talking about. Uh, it, it all sounds like having your cake and eat it. And speaking of cake, Hal, of course, when we think of our future self, often it's bound up in a, a thinner future self, a thinner self of a body that we're, we're proud of. We've done a number of shows on that, lots of debate, especially amongst women, about letting themselves go and feeling that their, their shame at body is, is bound up with very problematic social things. And, of course, now there's an increasingly uh, innovative uh technology which will allow people to control their bodies more effectively control their appetites and thereby Mm -hmm. create a thinner future self i wonder if you've done much thought or research into other kinds of medication for Mm -hmm. creating a better future self and and i'm guessing you're probably ambivalent about taking future pills which will make us better in the future yeah, I think that's exactly right. So, I mean, I haven't done the research that looks at this sort of question. You know, to some extent, 
you know, Ozempic and these other types of drugs, the, 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 the drug itself and the use case for it may be new, but the idea of trying to modify ourselves uh, using medical technology is, is, of course, not new. And I think this is a, you know, this is an incredibly complicated question, right? Because if there's cases where it's uh, increasing feelings of meaning and self-worth and happiness and well-being and whatnot, then that obviously could, could represent real progress. But if it's, if it's creating a desire to change myself in ways that I wouldn't have felt otherwise, you know, clearly that's where um, problems could arise. So, you know, I, I am a bit ambivalent about, you know, sort of like technological slash like medical changes to self. But of course, the ambivalence comes from the, the very real fact that there are, there are both pros and cons uh, to these sorts of things. Your work, of course, is intimately bound up with our conception of, of time. David Bowie wrote a wonderful song about it. Many other uh, poets, artists of one kind or another, novelists have written about time. On your website, you connect to lots of interesting pieces about time, whether we should have too much time or not enough in terms of building a better self. What does your book, Your Future Self, tell us about our relationship with time? If we are to build a better future self, do we need to think our, our relations with time, which of course is the most existential of all human concerns? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a variety of ways to think about how we rethink our relationship with time. Um, just one of them, though, is that, and this is in work that I've done collaboratively with Cassie Holmes and Jennifer Ocker, we sort of suggest that our, our normal mode is to almost take a ground, a ground level view of time where we sort of look ahead at the, you know, the, the road in front of us. There's so many metaphors, of course, that, that express the same sort of thing. Um, and what we've been suggesting uh, and em empirically testing is whether or not shifting that view so that instead of we're looking at time on the ground level, but rather taking a broad view of time, stepping up and almost, I believe the term that Cassie uses, almost taking a mosaic view uh, of time we're suggesting that that may be useful, especially in these sort of more existential concerns of considering how the different pieces of my life fit together, considering how we spend and I'll add invest our time and um, considering how we undertake activities or not that may bring us happiness now and later. The suggestion here is that if you can sort of look down on our lives, um, that can really help in terms of seeing the different pieces fit together. But by the way, one very useful exercise in doing so is, you know, a classic one that I think many people have done at some point in their lives, but it, it's difficult, but writing your own obituary, not the type of thing that you want to just wake up yeah. and do, but the, the, not a fun the, exercise, but not, not, not fun per se, but, um, but, but meaningful. And it could be the type of thing that, that helps to create that, that image of time spreading out uh, underneath us. Or a memoir, or perhaps organize your own funeral, say who can and can't come and what should or shouldn't be said and heard. 
I joked or I half joked at the beginning how that uh, you asked me how long this interview was going to be for. I said, if you were any good, it would be 30 minutes. If you weren't so good, it would be 40. Um, and we all know it's Wittgenstein's remark, I think, about uh, the, the fewer words you articulate, the more you say. I, I wonder whether that's true, too, in your analysis of time. I sometimes feel that if I cram more into a day, mm. I have less time, for example, to prepare for a show. The show is usually better. Is that just a, a kind of a, a convenience for me to, to, to always be running around like crazy? Or is there some truth to that? Do we tend to do our best work when we're perhaps a little bit more confined with time? We're more productive when, um, when the day is not endless. <laughs> well, th there's a couple of ways to, to tackle that. So when it comes to procrastination, we often tell ourselves that we work better under a tight deadline. That's empirically it turns out to not be so, so true. Um, you know, when, when people are given the options sort of wait and do something until the very end or spread it out over time, they, they do better when they spread out tasks over time. And so they're well-prepared. Now, of course, there are nuances to what you're talking about, right? So if you're saying, well, I'm going to, block off three full days on my calendar and prep for my next guest, I'm not so, so sure that would be an effective use of time because I think you could be, <laughs> there's a lot of other things you could be doing that and how efficient are you and so on. If you said, I'm going to block off a half day, that may be enough. And maybe that, that feeling of sort of constraint there will push you forward. But if you say, well, you know what, I can race around and race around and do a million things and then put this into the final 30 minutes there now we sort of flip back to the other side where that that may be uh, maladaptive right so it's it's a little bit about what sort of time are we divvying up now i'll just say one other thing which is that when it comes to our perception of time the more we pack into something the faster time feels in the moment it feels like our day just went by like that when we have a lot of different things but looking back retrospectively, that day actually feels longer because we did so many things. So there's these fascinating sort of quirks and wrinkles of time perception that are related to busyness and related to the number of things that we do. I mean, I guess there's good time and bad time. So when you had one headline in the Washington Post, having too much free time can be as bad as having too little. It's a question of of, 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 of the time itself. Is that fair that there's yeah. good and bad time? That's, it's a great way to put it. Um, it turns out that our, the, the relationship between the amount of discretionary time we have and our well-being, it's not linear, but rather it almost takes this upside down U shape so that the, you know, if we have no free time, we're not that happy. If we have more and more free time, we're feeling better about our lives, but then it starts to go back the more and more we have. This is not just an unemployment thing, but it's rather having sort of gobs of extra time where we're not doing something. It doesn't feel great. That said, if we fill our discretionary time doing things that would be considered purposeful and doing things that are social, that's when you start to see what scientists call a linear relationship where now more and more discretionary time is related to more and more happiness because we're filling that time with, as you said, good time. Uh, and so I think, you know, the idea here is it, it's not how much time you have, but as Cassie, my colleague has said, it's 
how you spend that time. I thought you were going to say Cassie, your dog, Hal. Um, time is ticking. We don't have a lot of time. And to make sure that you did a good job, Hal, let's try and keep it to 30 minutes. We've talked very abstractly. Uh, let's end a bit more concretely. Your future self, you've written this book, a uh, really interesting book about how to manage ourselves, how to make tomorrow better today, not socially, but individually. Perhaps just end, how with a couple of very, two or three very concrete uh, suggestions, advice that anyone can begin with. I mean, we want people, of course, to read your book, but even before reading your book, how can we make a better future self? Sure. That's a great question. So let's just talk about two things. One is engage in a conversation, a letter writing exercise where you write a letter to your future self. And, but then, and this is important, write a letter back from your future self. Mm. Um, there are websites, by the way, future me um, is a wonderful website that can aid in this process. You can write a letter and then pick a time to have that letter come back to you uh, to, to email be emailed back to you. And I think it's a, a great tool. Um, but again, go a step further and step into the shoes of your future self and write back. And what's lovely about that is it really forces you to see the world through your future self's eyes. The, the second concrete thing I'll say is um, I think we have to recognize that there's this version of us right now who wants to do good things. And there's this future self of ours who we want to say that that person, he they were able to look back and feel good about their decisions. And then there's this then there's this eventual self that's going to mess things up. This, you know, this is me saying, I, I don't want to eat candy tonight. And I want tomorrow me to say, I didn't eat candy last night. And then tonight I'll be tired and reach for the pantry and grab the peanut M&Ms. And one particularly useful thing, I think, in these cases is what's called a commitment device. Um, there's a wonderful website called stick.com with two Ks that can help people create commitment devices to make sure that we don't do the things that we don't want to do um, and almost inject some punishments uh, to us if we, if we fail to sort of live up to our word. Um, but the key there is to have somebody along the ride with you to kind of help constrain your behavior. And that's, I think that's just one other concrete thing that's a really useful tool there.